When Jesus had thus spoken, he was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was lying close to the breast of Jesus. So Simon Peter beckoned to him and said, Tell us who it is of whom he speaks. So lying thus, close to the breast of Jesus, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give this morsel when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What are you going to do? Do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought, because Jesus had the money box, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he immediately went out, and it was the night. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, I want to continue on with our sermon series, St. Luke's on Broadway, as we look at the musical, Jesus Christ Superstar. It was written by Tim Rice and by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Andrew and Tim first met back in 1965. I mean, Tim was all of 20 years old. Andrew was all of 17. Um, they, they set to work then on trying to produce some sort of a musical, and they created one entitled The Likes of Us. It was 1966, and they went to several producers, and no one was interested. But there was a man, Alan Doggett. He was a friend of Andrew's family. He was also the choir leader at um, Colette Court Boys School. And he gave them a stipend and said, I want you to write a pop cantata. And so Tim and Andrew went to work and they wrote this pop cantata. They chose as their subject Joseph and his many colored coat. And so it was in March of 1968 that there at this school, they presented it for the school and it was all of 15 minutes. But it was good. So good that Andrew's father, William Lloyd Webber, he thought we need to come produce this and actually share it with the public. He happened to be the church organist at Central Hall Methodist Church. Central Hall is located right across from Westminster Abbey there in London. It is a beautiful church. It was the headquarters of the British Methodist Church until not too recently. And so with his connections... Andrew and Tim were able to come and to present this pop cantata there at Central Hall. And now it had grown to 25 minutes. Again, there was a person there that night who actually reviewed musicals and wrote very favorably of it. And when they wrote favorably of it, it hit the papers. And soon an invitation from St. Paul's Cathedral came. Now, I think St. Paul's Cathedral is one of the most beautiful cathedrals that I have ever been in. If you've been there, you know it is amazing. And they were invited to come in November of 1968 and put on this Joseph story that now had grown to 35 minutes. 
But it's interesting, when they came to the end of that, they set it aside. It would ultimately become Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat, which we looked at recently in St. Luke's on Broadway, and I know is here at the music hall. But they set it aside. It would not really come out as that until 1974, and it wouldn't make Broadway until 1982. No, they set it aside because they had another idea. Why don't we do a rock opera? A rock opera where we look at Jesus through the eyes of Judas. And if we could look at all of the different characters in this story through the eyes of Judas, the characters of Mary Magdalene and Pilate and Peter, if we looked at Jesus through these different eyes and did it as a rock opera, that would be great. So they came up with this idea. They started to work on it. They went looking for some producers. The first producer they went to and they shared the idea, the answer was, this has to be the worst idea in the history of the world. So they went to a second producer who said, this has to be the worst idea ever. It was with that encouragement that they went forward. They kept on working, and by the end of 1969, they had produced the single Jesus Christ Superstar. And when it was released here in the United States, it went to number one, and it caused a stir. They kept on working, and it was in 1970 that they then produced a double album, Jesus Christ Superstar. And instead of being written as a musical for the stage... It really was produced more as a, a rock opera, ready for a record. I saw a, an interview with Andrew, and he was saying, you know, in the UK when it came out, it, some people liked it, some didn't. It didn't cause a big stir. But boy, it did in the United States. And they weren't really in tune with that. If you were here in 1970 and you were of the proper age, you know what kind of a stir it caused when it was released. In fact, soon, lots of churches were producing Jesus Christ Superstar. There was no script. There was no official release. Churches just started taking the music and performing it in their churches. And so that led very much to say, we've got to get in front of this train. And they soon had an opening on Broadway in 1971. Andrew was there for opening night. And when the show was over... He went back to his hotel room and he cried and cried. He thought it was horrible. The worst thing he had ever seen. The producer had not directed it in a way that he felt carried the message and what he wanted it to say. No, he thought it was horrible. It would run for about 711 performances. It would garner five Tony nominations. It would not win any. But they took it from Broadway and they then opened in 1972 in West End in London. And that director did it very different. Let it be more of a, a concert rather than a musical production through the storyline. And it was wildly successful. It would run for eight years. And from 1972 to 1980, it was the longest running musical in West End history. Now, you had a few other shows come along, kind of like Les Miserables and, 
and the phantom that kind of took that over. But for eight years, it was the one that was the longest running musical. It took the world by storm. 1973, they made it into a movie. Now, you need to know that as all this was happening, it was stirring such a controversy. Back in 1969, 1970, as they got ready to release the record, I want to read you what some of the executives were quoted as saying. The executives at MCA Records, they were terrified by it. And one executive said, a song like that will manage to offend everyone. Another said, if we put that record out, every churchman in the country will stone us. The secretary of that administrator said, it's sad when a company like DECA, who owned MCA, has to make money by making fun of Jesus. I remember when it came out and the great controversy that it was stirring. In 1973, it now is playing on Broadway, playing in West End, now the movie, and it was Norman Jewison who was the director. And when he got through with the movie, he provided a private screening for the Pope, Pope Paul VI. And I want to read you what the Pope had to say about it. Mr. Jewison, not only do I appreciate your beautiful rock opera film, I believe it will bring more people around the world to Christianity than anything ever has before. How have people looked at Jesus Christ Superstar for almost the last 50 years? From lots of different perspectives. Because it is this rock opera that really is trying to ask us to look at Jesus and all the characters involved with a whole different lens to the eyes of Judas. And the question that people have asked through history was, why did Judas betray Jesus? This follower, this loyal follower, why did he betray Jesus? In our scripture lesson this morning, taken from the book of John, we read about the night of the Last Supper. Jesus is at table with his disciples. He takes the bread and he breaks it and says, this is my body broken for you. He takes the cup and says, this is my blood that is shed for you. And then he says, one of you will betray me. He doesn't say it loud. It's John who is close to him and Peter, they hear. And it's Peter who immediately speaks up and says, who is it, Lord? You know, Peter, he's going to fix things. What's the problem? I'll go take care of it. Who is it, Lord? Well, John whispers back, who is it? And Jesus said, it is the one whom I hand the bread to after I have dipped it. And he takes the bread and dips it in the wine and he hands it to Judas. And he says, what you must do, do quickly. Now in the musical, there's actually a long piece all about this, a whole song about this moment, making this decision. And Jesus saying, what you must do, do it quickly. And Judas going, you know what I'm going to do. You must go do it. Why do you want me to do this? How are you doing? It's all these questions going back and forth 
to really expand on this moment because this is an important moment. Why did Judas betray Jesus? As a boy growing up, I always heard he did it for the money. 30 pieces of silver. He was the treasure. He liked money. I don't believe that's true. Another theory that I would always hear, Judas believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was about to form an army in the style of King David, and they had momentum and they could overthrow the Roman government. But then Jesus doesn't seize the moment. It's like he keeps on with this love rather than a sense of we have war to fight. We, we have a sense of hatred of what's going on with our occupiers. He's not seizing the moment. And so Judas wants to force his hand, put him into a box, get him into a corner. He's got to do something. And so he betrays him with the expectation that Jesus will finally get on with it with an army. Only to discover he was wrong. That's one theory. The theory that Andrew and Tim come up with is still a different one. It's the idea that, very much like Caiaphas, the high priest, that Jesus was a good man and he was doing good things. But now the movement was out of control. People were talking about Hosanna, son of David. He's a god. And he's going to bring down all this attention from the Romans. We're all going to get killed and all the Jewish people will be put to death as well. No, it's out of control and one person must die for the nation. That's what Caiaphas would say. This Jesus must die for the good of the nation. This Jesus must die. Maybe Judas thought the same thing because now they'd gotten so popular and attracted so much attention. What was the reason? We don't know. We don't know. But this musical asks everybody to think about it. Who was Judas? Why did he betray his friend? What was going on? I think it made everybody think then, 50 years later. It should make us all think. And I want us to ask ourselves three questions this morning. First of all, you need to stop and ask, what were Jesus' teachings? What did Jesus teach? I propose that if you go back and read the teachings of Jesus, you'll find that he had a radical message of social upheaval. That Jesus came along and he was saying things like, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the left cheek also. You must not only love those who love you, you must love your enemies as well. If someone asks you to go one mile, you go with them two miles. If you have two coats and your neighbor has none, you must give them one of your coats. This was a radical social message. Today, I think we soften it, we sanitize it, we tone it down. But if you go back and read the message, he was calling for a radical change in social behavior, the way that people were acting with one another, the way we would be acting with one another today. It was a radical message. And for many, it was hard to hear. I had a friend ask me recently, and they said, Bob, 
is Jesus a socialist? And I said, his disciples thought so. We know after Jesus had been crucified and ascended into heaven, it says they held all things in common. Go back and read the book of Acts for yourself. The whole idea was everybody's going to be taken care of. Everyone will be fed. Everyone will be clothed. All things will be held in common. That was the idea. But we also know within 20 years after this experiment began, we have the Apostle Paul writing the Thessalonians and saying, He who does not work should not eat. You know, human personality 2,000 years ago is the same today. And if you don't get any more by all your hard work or any less, it sure does seem to make people lazy. And that's what Paul was saying. You don't work, then you should not eat. We know that by the end of the first century, this idea of we're all going to hold everything in common, well, it had died and it had gone away. We begin to soften this message of Jesus. We begin to make the message of Jesus fit our lifestyle. And so we make Jesus like us. I, I, I ask you the question. In your own mind, if Jesus were here today, do you think he would be a Republican or a Democrat? If you think Jesus would be a Republican or a Democrat, I want you to call Wendy Lambert. <laughs> and she'll set you straight about this program. Now, where do you think if Jesus was here today, he would choose to go to school? OU? OSU, Oklahoma City University, a good Methodist school. Probably the only thing most people agree on was it would not be the University of Texas. <laughs> now, we start putting Jesus in our own image thinking he will think like us and all the things and identify with us. What, what do you think Jesus would think about democracy? I love living in a free country where I can choose what I'm going to do. Do we use our freedom for goodness and kindness and helping the poor and helping others? Or is it our freedom for ourselves and our wants? Do we show respect and kindness? How do we use our democracy? Now, I think Judas would look at the teachings of Jesus and he felt they were radical and they were good. They were changing society. They would change the world and how we acted. His fear was people were going to take these teachings of Jesus and misuse them. They twist them. And they'll accuse him of things he did not say and did not do. That's the fear because that's what happens in this world. Last year while we were in the midst of our um, St. Luke's on Broadway. I had the privilege of having lunch with Gene Rainbolt and Max Weisenhofer and Keith Turner. Keith Turner happens to be the lawyer for Andrew Lloyd Webber. And of course, Max being so involved in drama and, uh, and theater also knows Andrew. And so I jumped at the chance because I thought this would be great to hear the behind the scenes and what is Andrew really like by those who know. And we had a delightful lunch, and what they shared was Andrew really is a very nice guy 
who really spends a lot of his money and time helping to open the door for younger people who want to get into theater and get into drama. People don't talk about that. He's created a foundation where he does so much good and one of those things is helping to keep churches open in Europe. You know, the Protestant church is not doing well in Europe. And he's created a program where it tries to help find a way to keep the key to the door so it's open during the week where people can come for inspiration and see these religious artifacts. Now Keith was saying, you know, whenever Andrew travels, he always goes to church on wherever he is on a Sunday. He likes to see different things. And that's what got him into trouble. And I said, I'm sorry. He said, don't you remember? It was Ray Rep a number of years ago, who sued Andrew for plagiarism. Ray Rep, back in the 60s and 70s, well, he, he was in the Catholic Church and he was a singer-songwriter and he tried to promote folk music in the Mass, which became very popular in Mass. But he had written a song entitled, Till You. And so he accused Andrew of taking part of that music, Till You, and using it in the music, Phantom. And I said, well, how did they pull all that together? And he said, well, the argument was, we all know that Andrew goes to church every Sunday when he travels. And we all know he came to Chicago about this time. And so there's a good chance he came to my church and heard this song. And so that's how he used it to write Phantom. And I said, you've got to be kidding. He said, no, no, that was the argument. I said, I hope as his lawyer you won. He smiled and laughed and said, oh, we did. But still the time and the effort and the money to fight against such senseless, baseless accusations. People can accuse and they can twist. It's exactly what happened to Jesus. Just like Judas said it would. The high priest began to accuse him of things he did not do. And then it was before Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? Sedition, he was not trying to cause treason. And then to Herod, oh, what are you like? Are you the Christ, the great Jesus Christ? Walk across my swimming pool. It's a beautiful song that makes you smile. No, it was all these things he gets accused of that were not true twisting his teachings and his sayings. Just as Judas predicts, this is what can happen. And so if that's what can happen, maybe you and I need to go back and take time to read and study ourselves. What does Jesus say? What are the teachings? For if we take them seriously, it's going to change the way you and I treat each other. And so secondly... We should be asking the question, what is the spirit of Jesus' teachings? Because you see, one of the things that happens is when you and I go and begin to study the Holy Scripture, whether it is going to be through the Hebrew Scriptures, whether it's going to wind up being through our New Testament, as we read through the Scriptures and we start then going, well, Jesus said this and He said this, and it's easy to become legalistic and you start looking for the minutia. Well, I bet he meant it. Well, this says this. And if you're not careful, 
you start losing the big picture of what it's all about. Jesus said this would happen and was happening. He said to the Pharisees, you tithe your mint and dill and cumin. Now, mint and dill and cumin, as you know, they're spices you use in cooking. And in a good Jewish home in that day, you would have a small garden and maybe six or seven plants. And the Pharisees were concerned about tithing 10% of everything they had, their livestock, their crops, their money, even down to six plants. Did they give 10% to the temple? You tithe your mint and dill and cumin, Jesus said, but you have forgotten the weightier matters of the law, like justice and kindness and faith. It's easy to know the the letter of the law, and have forgotten the spirit of the law. This last week, Phil Greenwald and Wendy Lambert and Josh Attaway and myself, we were all down in Dallas at some meetings. And one evening, we decided to go out and have a good dinner at a steakhouse. We went to Dakota Steakhouse. It's right downtown Dallas. It's right across the street from First Baptist Church. I'd never been there before. Uh, we were told by the concierge it was good, and so we went, and we Ubered over there. Whenever you pull up, well, what you find is there's this little place, not a whole lot bigger than this, a door you kind of walk in, and that's it. I mean, I'm looking around, you don't see a restaurant. And you get on this elevator, and it takes you down 18 feet, and the doors open up, and here's this wonderful restaurant underground, beautiful restaurant. And we soon began learning the story. What happened was, back in 1985, Lincoln Enterprises moved to Dallas for their world headquarters. They wanted to have a lovely restaurant near their headquarters. And so they approached First Baptist Church and they wanted to buy this piece of property, kind of pie-shaped where these roads meet, and that's where they wanted to put a, a, a lovely restaurant. And so First Baptist sold the property to the Lincoln Group and in the deed, they said, no alcohol shall be served on these grounds. So no alcohol was being served on those grounds. You went 18 feet down. It was being served underground. <laughs> and so we were having dinner and and we're talking about this going, man, this, that was creative. I mean, wow, that was amazing. And you know how the manager will always come by and goes, everything wonderful tonight? Is everything good? And we were going, yeah, yeah, that's great. I said, man, this was so creative that here you buy this property, you're told you can't serve alcohol on the grounds. You come down 18 feet so you can serve alcohol. He said, oh, yes, we had some good lawyers. <laughs> and I said, I'm curious. That was 35 years ago. Do the deacons from the church ever come to this restaurant? <laughs> he said, yes, they do, but they have to drink their wine out of a teacup. <laughs> he then winked and smiled and said, that's a joke. It's a joke. I said, I got it. I got it. But anyway, I, I sat there thinking, you know, that was creative. And by the letter of the law... They fulfilled the obligation. But I thought, I think they missed the spirit of how it was written. And that's what happens so often in life. We can start looking at all the teachings of Jesus and we, we miss the spirit 
as we try to become legalistic and get it all just right. It was happening in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Ever since the time of Moses, they had more than 600 laws. And with 600 laws, they couldn't quite figure out what was the most important, what to do. And it was the prophet, prophet Micah who said, What does the Lord require of you, O Israel? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's exactly what Jesus told the Pharisees about tithing their mint and dill and cumin. And what is required of you? You're forgetting the more important things of the law, justice and mercy and faith. A lawyer came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? What's the most important? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Everything else is about doing this, loving God and loving your neighbor. And he gave us the radical teachings of what that would look like. To understand the spirit of Jesus' teachings, so that as we look at the radical teachings, we understand the spirit and we make the decisions on how to treat each other and how to walk with our God. And so third, we should be asking the question, just like Judas, who is Jesus? For Judas, Jesus was a man, a good man, a man who had strong teachings about how they would change the world. But he was afraid because the whole movement was getting out of control. He'd become a superstar. Who is Jesus for us as his disciples, as people of the Christian faith? You know, if you were Jewish, then you looked to Moses as the person who brought the law and began to tell you how to live in faith. If you were Muslim, you looked to Muhammad as the one who brought the law and taught you how to live and treat one another and to live in God. If you were a Christian, then you looked to Jesus as the one whom we believe is the best revelation, the manifestation of God, so that we understand the nature of God and how we are called to live one, one another and to love Him. That's why we call Jesus Son of God. Who is Jesus? We call Him Savior. But save you from what? He saves us from ourselves, from our own selfish wants and desires and our angers and our jealousies, he saves us from the way we would harm one another because of the way we feel. He saves us through helping us to know we are forgiven when we have failed to be our best so we don't spend the rest of our life in guilt and anger at our own failure. He helps us to be living with God so we're not separated. And to be separated from God is the definition of sin 
whatever separates you from God. So I guess he saves us from our separation, our sin. Who is Jesus? Well, we talk about he's fully human and fully divine. And I think sometimes in the Christian church we focus so much on the divine that we forget to focus on his humanity. What did he feel? What was going on? And that's what I think was so special about Jesus Christ Superstar and why it rattled so many people because it asked us, will you step back and look at Jesus' humanity and not just through the eyes of us seeing divinity, but the eyes of humanity. And what would he struggle with? And who was he as a person? To know who Jesus is, is an important question. It changes the way you treat other people and the way you live life. Sometimes we forget. When Andrew was trying to write Jesus Christ Superstar, the first song, he, uh, somewhere in 68, 69, he said, the tune came to him. The music came. He knew what he wanted to write for Jesus Christ Superstar. But he didn't write it down quickly, and he soon forgot it. He forgot it. I mean, have you ever had that happen? You have a great idea. Something's brilliant. You don't write it down, and you forget it. I mean, it upset. He forgot it. An extended period of time went by, and then one day he was walking down Fulham Road there in London, and he remembered. It came back. It's like, I got it. And not wanting to lose it again, he ran into a restaurant, Carlo's Place. It was a friend of his that owned it. And he ran in there and he said, I need a piece of paper. They didn't have any paper up at the receptionist area, so they handed him a napkin. And he went over and sat down on a napkin, and there he began to write the score for Jesus Christ Superstar. Because he remembered Maybe you and I need to remember to take seriously Jesus, the Christ. Who is Jesus? It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. Um,